Jesus is basically encouraging them to say, I know your present predicament. I know you're faithful. I know your works. I also know your tribulation. And I also know your intense poverty, that is, your intense physical and social oppression. And But he goes on to say he knows their enemies. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is likely, at least in part, the cause or source of their tribulation. The word rendered blasphemy literally means to slander. And it likely refers to the false accusations of these Jews leveled against the Christians. The unbelieving Jews slandered and maligned Christians, and in the process, they blasphemed or they spoke evil against God. To slander or malign God's people is is basically the same with speaking evil against God himself. They were lying about the Christians. They were lying about the Christians because they hated the Christians and they wanted the Christians to be the object of Rome's wrath. They claimed to be God's people. That's what Jesus means when they say they claimed to be, they call themselves Jews. They were physically Jews. But the thing was they were equating Jew with God's people. They were basically attempting to assert that they were the true people of God because of the fact that they were physically Jews. Now this is interesting, isn't it? We have the assertion here by these Jews that they're God's people because they're Jewish. They were trusting or leaning upon the fact that they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were that. They were physical descendants of Abraham. They were physical Jews. But were they God's people? What does Jesus say of them? No, they're in fact a congregation. He actually makes a play um, on words here. They're really the church of Satan. That's what he says. They're the church of Satan. A congregation led by, devil, by the devil himself. Brethren, physical descent does not render you God's people. Our Savior makes very plain as he does to the Jews elsewhere. Remember in John 8, 44, they again were appealing to the fact that they were Jews. And uh, Jesus says to them, you're not really Jews. You're not really the descendants of Abraham because if you were really the descendants of Abraham you would do the works that Abraham did. And what were the works that Abraham did? He believed. And the fact that you don't believe means you're not truly the descendants of Abraham. You are, in fact, the sons of Satan. And you willingly do the works of Satan. You don't do the works of Abraham, believe. You do the works of Satan, you disbelieve. So Jesus doesn't just say here, no, these are still God's people of a sort, even though they don't believe. He says, no, they're God-hating, 
Christ-hating sons of Satan. Brethren, we don't worship the same God as unbelieving Jews, to put it as plainly as I can. Now that's contrary to some evangelicals in our day who think otherwise. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. If you don't worship the God of the New Testament, you don't worship the God of the Old Testament. Unbelieving Jews today do not worship the same God. Muslims, Islam, they do not worship the same God. To reject the God of the new is to reject the God of the old. There's only one God. And so Jesus identifies them as a synagogue, a church, a gathering, an assembly of Satan. Strong terminology. So the point is, is that Jesus knows them and he knows their enemies. Okay? Now we come to a twofold exhortation in verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Twofold exhortation be fearless, and secondly, be faithful. Notice be fearless. Do not fear. They were about to endure a season of persecution suffering, and imprisonment. Jesus describes this season as ten days. That's figurative language, brother. It doesn't mean that they were literally going to be in prison for ten days. It just means that there's going to be a predetermined season. That's what it means. Ten days. No more, no less. It's actually an encouragement to the people. It's an encouragement because it what? It underscores the fact that Jesus determines how long and how intense the persecution is. Satan doesn't determine that. The Romans, the Jews, these did not determine that. Jesus determined that. It was 10 days. It wasn't nine and a half, and it won't be 10 and a half days. 10 days. A predetermined time. You will be, he says, by the devil, thrown into prison. Now, it's important to notice that there's several layers of individuals in this scenario. Okay, there's the Christians, there's the Jews, there's the Romans, there's the devil, and then there's Jesus. I think that's five, isn't it? A five-fold layer theology of persecution. Brother, this is a tremendous text. Think of it like this. The Jews were slandering the Christians to the Romans. The Romans were going to throw them into jail, but they were doing that because Satan was controlling them. And yet they did that ultimately for Jesus to test them. Because when it says that they're going to be tested, they, they have to be imprisoned to be tested, it means it means Jesus is testing them. Jesus is testing them by allowing Satan to stir up the Jews and the Romans to throw his people into prison. Now, their prisons were not like our prisons. You didn't have a commissary. You didn't have 
you don't have you didn't have a TV and a nice weight room. No, it was hard. It was difficult, and it almost always included physical beatings and abuse. They were going to get beat up. They were going to be scourged. They were going to, they were going to suffer. And that's why the text says tribulation. This imprisonment would entail tribulation. It would be very, very difficult for them. And that's the whole point here, why he's trying to encourage them. Don't be afraid. That suffering that's coming upon you ultimately is determined not by Satan, not by the Romans, not by the Jews, but by me. And I'm bringing it not for your harm, but for your good. I'm going to test you. I want to come back to that. Listen to Lenski. He says this. The Jews will succeed in stirring up the pagan authorities to arrest, arrest some of the Christians for alleged crimes. This was easily accomplished. Criminal practices were frequently charged against Christians during all the periods of persecution. The poor victims were not only imprisoned in dungeons, but were oftentimes examined under frightful scourgings and torture. And so, as I've said, the ten days is figurative, brethren, and just keep that in mind as we move through the book of Revelation. Oftentimes, the dates and the numbers are figurative, as here. Be faithful, secondly. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, death here means physical death, and it's to be contrasted with the second death at the end of verse 11. So there's the possibility that they would die while imprisoned at the hand of, of the Romans, be faithful to death. It could be that they're going to die in that 10-day, that season of persecution. Be faithful. He's basically saying be faithful to the end of your life. That's what it means. Because it's possible that they would live and possible that they would live a long life. It's possible maybe that they would live another 30 or 40 years and have to endure all manner of difficulty. Be faithful to the end. That's what he means, brethren, when he says be faithful to death. Be faithful to the end. Now, the English word faithful explains itself. To be faithful is to remain full of faith. Faithful. And this underscores that they were not to look within themselves for strength because faith derives its strength from its object. And its object is Jesus. So he's not telling them to just grin and bear it. He's not saying, I got confidence in you. You can do it. He's saying, no, you can't do it. And look to me. Who will ensure you will do it? That's what it means. Be faithful. Keep believing. Keep looking to me. Because remember what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But attached to me by faith, you can do all things. You can endure to the end. You can endure all of 
Brethren, we just can't even conceive. It's hard for us, isn't it, to really enter into a, a letter like this to Smyrna. Because we know so little persecution. But for a church like this, on the verge of an intense season of persecution, these words would have come, no doubt, with exceeding, exceeding encouragement, grace, and joy. The word crown means wreath. And it probably doesn't refer to a crown as we think of it, like a king's crown, as much as a wreath or garland given to somebody who finishes the race. I think the imagery of a race here is implied. Be faithful to the end. Run the race to the end and you'll get a crown. Only those who finish the race get, got, would get a crown, unlike today. If you just join the, the sport, you get a, a ribbon. Now you have to complete it in the olden days to get the ribbon. Uh, not everybody got a ribbon. Let's just put it as plain as that. Not everybody got a crown. Not everybody got a wreath. Not everybody got a garland. Why? Because not everybody finished the race. You have to finish the race and you'll get the crown of life. And again, that's in contrast, isn't it, with the second death. There's a second death, which is hell. Because death means separation, right? Physical separation is the separation of soul and body, as we were reminded last Saturday at Mrs. Miller's funeral. And what is the second death? It's separation from God's mercy in the lake of fire for all eternity. Now, there's a sense in which in hell you're you're not separated from God, right? Because God is in hell. God is what makes hell hell. It's his wrath that kindles it for all eternity. But there's another sense in which it's separation from God in that you're separated for all eternity from salvation, from grace, and from mercy, and from his love. But remember what John says, or what Paul says in Hebrews. That to die outside of Christ is to fall into the hands of an angry God, brethren. That's what hell is. Hell is falling into the hands of an angry God for all eternity. Forever separated from his love. Forever separated from any possibility of salvation. But the opposite of that is life. For the Christian, when they die, they fall into the hands of a loving God. And they have life. That is, they're with God for all eternity. They're in the presence of God in his love and his mercy and his grace for all eternity. And in the presence of God is the fullness of joy. And then he gives them a motivation. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, as I've said, second death means hell or lake of fire. We read of that actually, don't we, further in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. This is the second death, the lake of fire. To overcome implies opposition. Um, it's possible that he's still using 
the same imagery of a race because there is opposition. You have to go over hills and terrain and you have to go against the opposition of your own flesh that wants to cease from the, uh, from the activity. But it's more probable that he alters, which is common, the imagery, changes the imagery from race to warfare. Because this term, uh, overcome, it literally means to conquer, defeat, or to gain the victory. The fact that these Christians would not be hurt by the second death would serve as an encouragement, though they may be hurt by the first death. It's, it's very possible you're going to die at the hands of the Romans, but you shall not be hurt by the second death. And if truth be told, the first death is controlled by God also, and it's just an entrance from this life into the next. Death for the Christian is, well, Paul said, it brings with it great gain. It's still an enemy, and it's still going to hurt when they torture you. Maybe they're going to scourge you every day for six months. And they're going to do all the wicked things the Romans did to, to the Christians. Probably crucify you after all that. No, it's going to hurt. In that sense, you'll be hurt by the second death. But ultimate, or by the first death. But you shall not be hurt by the second death. And even with regards to the first death, that is physical death. Remember, the Lord will be with you. And the scripture tells us, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And remember again what we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. It's appointed unto man once to die. In other words, God has ordained all your days. David says in Psalm 139, all my days have been written down in a book, O oh God, you know all of them. And when the last second of the last day ends, then I'll die and not before. And so death has been ordained. And while it hurts, it's an enemy of sorts, it's defeated already. Remember, death, where's your sting? And ultimately it brings with it gain because it's just a bridge, a river, that we all have to cross to get into Emmanuel's land. Right? This is what he says. It, be faithful to the end. Cross the river, believingly. And you'll have life eternal. Brother, it is a beautiful... I mean, this is what Jesus is doing. He's encouraging these people on the, on the front end of this season of suffering with heaven. It's a beautiful encouragement for all of us. Not just those who are enduring intense persecution, but for all of us who live in this godless, Christ-hating, Christian-persecuting world. For Mrs. Miller when she died on Wednesday morning. She was faithful to the end. And at 8.20... She breathed her last. And then she received her crown of life. 
And she isn't hurt by the second death because Jesus bore that for her. But she's enjoying the fullness of joy in the presence of God, the angels, and the perfected saints who've gone before. Well, let me summarize it with these observations. One, notice first of all the identity, the true identity of God's people. We find in this passage that the world hates God's people. We find in this passage the devil hates God's people. But we also find in this passage that Jesus knows and loves God's people. Furthermore, we also find out the identity of God's people. God's people is nothing more, nothing or are nothing more or nothing less than rich Jews. Every Christian is a rich Jew. Paul said to the Romans, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. God's people, brethren, are made up of spiritual Jews. You can be a physical Jew or a physical Gentile. But if you're a Christian, you're the true Israel of God. You're the true descendants of Abraham. Brethren, it's in every way very wrong to tell unbelieving, Christ-hating Jews they're God's people when they're not. It's confusing, to say the least, and it's deceptive at its worst. It's a flat lie. God has a people and they are those who have been circumcised in the heart. Furthermore, though they may look despised, impoverished, and beat up on the outside, Jesus says they are in fact very rich on the inside. And brother, we know that you have to have, and Jesus The scripture tells us he's concerned for us body and soul. We're to pray, give us our daily bread, which includes physical possessions. And remember, John said, if you love somebody and you just you have the means to care for their physical needs and you send them away, how does the love of God dwell in you? No, we have to care for people's physical needs. It's right in every way to have the means to care for your physical needs. But brethren, it's far best to have nothing in this world. To be like these Christians, absolutely and totally impoverished. And to have Christ, because to have Christ is to have true, eternal, and lasting riches. You say, but I can't pay the light bill with grace. That's true. You have to work and pray and plead that God would help you. But brethren, surely it's an encouragement even when the money is tight. And all the numbers may not even add up. Or you're fearful in terms of how they may not add up. To know that ultimately they all add up. And that I'm spiritually and eternally rich. This is the true church. In contrast to the synagogue of Satan. Secondly, the necessity of suffering. Here we learn that all suffering comes from Christ to test his people. 
as I said before, we really have here a, a beautiful theology of, of suffering. We have the need for it, the causes of it, the reasons or the purposes of it. And of course, suffering comes in different ways. There's inward suffering. There's outward suffering, or we could say spiritual and mental suffering, and there's physical suffering. And these Christians, no doubt, were on the verge of enduring all of those. But even though we're not in a season of intensified persecution, we all suffer. And we all enter the kingdom of heaven through many and great tribulation. Thus, we mustn't think that these Christians were somehow secret sinners. God does chastise us for our sins with suffering. But there's nothing in the letter that assumes that they were secret sinners. They were just, perhaps we can say, just regular saved sinners who sinned. And they became fearful at times and unbelieving at times and disobedient at times, even though they were a faithful church. And thus they needed, as we all need, suffering to purify us. And this is all suggested to us, brethren, in the word testing. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Perhaps we can say this is the foremost, well, it's an obvious and important reason for suffering. And I want to suggest that this testing entails three things. One, to test is to purify. Two, to test is to certify. And three, to test is to glorify. Notice first, to purify. Metals are tested or tried in order to remove impurities and purify or strengthen the metal. When I was real young, my daddy and mama got me a little tin soldier kit. And uh, we didn't have tin, it was too expensive, but daddy got copper, not copper, but um, what was the cheap, lead? I think it was lead he used, some cheap, cheap, cheaper version of tin. I thought it was tin. And I, would, I, I just had one pile of it, so I would make the soldiers, melt the soldiers, recast the soldiers, and I did that for years. Uh, of course, the metal got smaller over the few years. But what I would do is I would take it, I would paint them, I would put them back in the little thing, put the fire beneath it, melt them back down, and put them back in the molds. And it was fascinating to watch how the fire would reduce the, the, the metal down to a liquid, and all the impurities, the paint and, other, and otherwise, would come to the top. And I would have to scrape it off. And beneath that, that layer of scum or paint imperfections, there was clear, beautiful metal. 
And brethren, this is exactly what the church in Smyrna needed. And this is exactly what the church in America needs. It needs to be purified. We need to be purified. Remember, this is exactly what Job endured. He said that the Lord is testing me or trying me. And when he's completed with me, I'll come forth as pure gold. He's melting me down, brethren, that hurts. It's suffering, it's tribulation, it's hardship, it's affliction. And it comes in a variety of ways and durations and intensities. But it all comes for this reason, or at least in part for this reason, to purify us. Listen to what Thomas Manton said. God's aim in our afflictions is not destruction, but trial. As gold is put into the furnace to be refined and not consumed. My goal in melting down the, the, the metal wasn't to destroy it. It was to refine it. And that's what Jesus was going to do. Through the persecution stirred up by Satan, wicked Romans, and apostate Jews. Secondly, though, testing is not only to purify, but to certify. And by this I mean the Lord tests his people to prove which is real and fake metal. Okay, so testings come to purify us as Christians, right? But they also come to purify churches and weed out the fake. Brother, that's why the churches are so big in our country. There's no persecution. I assure you this. What happens when in this country you have to worship Sunday morning at 3 o'clock a.m. because of persecution? And to be a Christian means that your business is going to suffer. And you're probably going to be poor, impoverished like these Christians. It may even result in you being imprisoned and beaten. And possibly killed. I, 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 I pose this question to you. Do you believe that the churches will stay the same sizes in this country when that happens? I suggest to you they're going to shrink. But they're going to be pure. That which isn't metal will be removed. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.7, you have been grieved by various trials, okay? You've been grieved by various trials, and here's why, that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine. You see, this idea of certifying our faith, the quality of our religion, is not only to remove that which is fake, but to assure that which is true. Right? When hardship comes, when tribulation comes, people either will be better for it or worse. If, it's, if they're true, they're going to stick it out and the Lord is going to purify them, and they're going to cling more tightly to Christ, His Word, and His church. But others will leave. 
Christ, his word, and his church. Because they were never the real thing to begin with. And so testing is necessary to purify Christians, to certify Christians, and to glorify Christ. Trials come to bring glory to God as poor Christians choose to suffer rather than deny him. Do you remember in the book of uh, Acts? They were told not to preach anymore in Jesus' name or else they would be rearrested and they would suffer. And as soon as they were let loose, what did they do? They went out in the streets and preached that Jesus is Lord. And they said, in essence, what? We have to obey God than man. Brother, these Christians at Smyrna were willing to suffer for mostly because they viewed Jesus' smile as more important than the world's frown. Or perhaps we can put it like this. They were in essence saying Jesus is worthy. He's worth worshiping when the barns are full. He's worth worshiping when they're empty. He's worth worshiping when my body's healthy. He's worth worshiping when it's not. He's worth worshiping when everything is going fine. And he's worth it when it's not. And that brings glory to him. Finally, the source of our endurance. I said that this passage provides us with a wonderful theology of suffering, but it also provides us with a wonderful theology of endurance. We learn about the need for it, the motive for it, and the source of it. Let me just quickly go through those, the the need of it. Brethren, the text says that the one who endures gets a crown. A person who doesn't endure doesn't get a crown. It's really that simple. And then a motive. A motive is, is, is there's several motives given. One of them being this. You will get a crown. Brethren, Christians endure to get a crown because to get a crown means they're going to be with Jesus who is the source of their life. But then the source of their endurance is what? The source of their endurance is Jesus himself because the text tells us that we're to be faithful. This is what Jesus says. Be faithful. And so to be faithful implies what? It implies a distrust of ourselves. It implies the recognition that in and of myself, I'm weak. In and of myself, I'm frail. In and of myself, I can't do it. But it also implies the knowledge that in Christ, through Christ, I can do it. God will give me the grace to do it. And so every day I wake up with these two confessions simultaneously upheld. In and of myself, I'm weak, I can't do it. In and by God's grace, I'm strong, and I will do it. 
And so, brother, that's why those who endure, they don't boast in themselves, but in fact, how do those who endure, how are they described in the book of Revelation? What, what, do, what do those saints do with those crowns when they get to heaven? They cast them at the feet of the Lamb. As if to say, it was all His grace that got me here. Because remember, faith is a gift that Jesus promises always to give to those who are His. And He doesn't promise to give it halfway or three-quarters way or 90% but he promises to give it to the end. And he doesn't just promise to give it in the good times, but in the bad times. He promises to give it in those 10 days of persecution and tribulation. And so Christians will endure without exception, and they will do so by his grace, and they will do so for its glory. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, John says. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Christ has already overcome the world. And because he's already defeated the world, we've already defeated the world in him. We've already won the victory. We've already already won the crown. And now all that's waiting, brethren, is for us to receive it as he enables us to be faithful to the end, which he will without exception. Well, that's what he said to the church at Smyrna, and that's what he says to the church in Canton. Well, we want to stand and sing then hymn 597. Hymn 597. Notice a few uh, phrases in this hymn. There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain. Verse 2 is uh, encouraging in light of the weather switch. There, everlasting springs.